So um, I've been looking forward to this day since I started the Book of Romans. I've been thinking about it uh, because today I get to preach Romans 4, 5. And I say that because it is actually, and I do mean actually, my favorite verse in the entire Bible uh, because it's so mind-blowing and so just mind-expanding. Um, and I, I, you guys know me to be a guy of intensity, hyperbole maybe, you know, I, you know, I'm grandiose in many ways. And so when I say, I, I say often, though this is one of my favorite verses, you know, you might be like, is this really his favorite verse? Seriously? I'm kind of skeptical of this idea that this is Nate's favorite verse. Well, if you need any more proof, it's on my wall in my house. If we can have Jacob, see, and Johnny hung it actually just like a Three weeks, four weeks ago before I got Rona. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's in my house. So it is my favorite verse. There's no verse that's, this, that's that big in my house, and it's hanging up on a wall. So, it is, yeah, that's how you know I'm not actually, that's how you can trust me here. Uh, say, well, why is that your favorite verse, Nate? And the reason why is it says something very, I think, radical and unexpected that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly by, by faith, by trusting in him. And this is even more shocking as we're going to look and see as we go through the Bible verse by verse. This is even more shocking as we look at the Greek language. The Bible was originally written in Koine Greek, not English. And as we look at that and translate it, it even becomes more daunting and amazing how clear and, uh, and uh, the, the different elements of it. And I remember... Um, going to graduate school and seminary and learning Greek, Koine Greek, so I could translate the Bible and preach it. And, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, like, when you're going through seminary, usually people in seminary are outwardly living in a righteous life. Uh, you're studying to be a pastor, so you want to have kind of your act together. And I was one of those that had an outwardly righteous life. But you see, inside, as we all feel, I feel anger especially when someone cut me off, was, you know, speeding past me, whatever, you know, pride, jealousy, all those things inside of me. And inside of me, I felt so ungodly. And so, you know, you wrestle with the fact, how could someone with me who sins often, struggles with sin, be a Christian, let alone trying to be a pastor? And so it was always something that was in the back of my mind and weighed so heavily on my, my heart. And so I'll never forget, and this is why it's one of my favorite verses, is I was in an exam um, in Westminster. It was a very intense exam. It was an exam for systematic theology. I mean, how academic and obtuse can you get than having an exam on systematic theology? And one of the portions of the exam I had to translate in, from, from Greek to English, Romans 4, 5. And I sat there reading it in Greek and how clear it was, how amazing it was. And I began in the middle of an examination to break down and cry because I was like, this is so amazing and clear how God legally declares us righteous. Me, a sinner, even though I'm so messed up, he still loves me. And it bring, brought me so much joy and relief that, you know, to my anxious heart that I started crying in a, sem in a seminary examination. And perhaps my professor saw me and thought like, oh, he's doing really bad. That's why he's crying. <laughs> Probably thought that. Um, and so here this morning, we're going to look at this and read through Romans and look at how this makes Christianity different than any other religion. Any founder of any religion has never said in the world that God justifies the ungodly, the wicked. And so this is by 
is we'll see justification by faith alone only. Uh, and this has been the, the context. So we've taken a long break from Romans going through our Christmas series. Um, but what we've seen is in Romans 3, it's all about justification. So Romans 1, you've got, you know, non-religious people are bad and guilty. Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 2, you've got the Jewish people are guilty. Religious people are guilty. So both non-religious and religious people are sinful and guilty. Jew and Gentile, everybody's sinful. Everybody's messed up. Then Romans 3, we've seen that we're saved by faith and grace alone. And so that's kind of what, what we've been leading up to this whole time is everybody's bad. Y'all need Jesus, believe in Jesus to be saved, and we're saved by faith alone. This is what kind of like the, 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 the leading up, the main summary of the whole book is in terms of leading up to this point, verse 28 of Romans 3:28. For we hold that one is justified apart from works of the law. Justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so this is all about justification by faith alone. It's interesting. I was reading this this week. I love reading through Joseph Fitzmyers' commentary. Um, in, you can get it. It's very academic. It's very good. But his commentary on um, uh, the book of Romans, and he actually was a Roman Catholic priest. He was a father. Some people would call him Father Fitzmyer. It's kind of, kind of has a ring to it, doesn't it? Father Fitzmyer. Uh, and so he was a great scholar. And one of the things I respect about his scholarship is whatever his doctrine or theology was, he didn't care. He would just say what, exactly what the Bible said. And that's why I've appreciated his commentaries, because he just sticks with what the Bible says as he's interpreting it. And as he's looking at Romans 3, this is how he summarizes Romans 3.28. He says, the emphasis and qualification apart from deeds of law show that in this context, Paul means by faith alone. Only faith appropriates God's effective declaration of, our, of, of uprightness for a human being. So according to even Father Fitzmaier here, Romans 3 is about justification by faith alone. And so what Paul is doing here is Romans 4 here, he's going, he's moving on and he's saying, okay, yeah, you're saved by faith alone. Here is an Old Testament example of a person who was saved by faith alone, who was justified by faith alone. And Paul does this here uh, to show, okay, first of all, this, this idea, because I've heard people say this before, that, oh, in the New Testament, it's all about grace and faith, but in the Old Testament, people had to be saved by works and by keeping the law. I've heard people say things like that. And Paul is saying, no, this gospel of justification, this is not just a New Testament thing, but it's also an Old Testament thing. Abraham was justified by faith alone. So let's look here as we return to our verse-by-verse -verse study, looking at Romans 4.1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Paul is Jewish, and he's addressing his Jewish brothers here. Jesus was Jewish too. Um, verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Citing Genesis, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The question people have is like, so why does he pick out Abraham? Why not? another Old Testament character. Well, the reason is, is that in the first century Jewish mind, if you're going to talk about the big enchilada of, of Judaism, the best Old Testament character, the one they looked up to the, the most, it was going to be Abraham. Abraham's the guy. He's kind of a big deal. People know him, right? He is amazing. 
and they thought he is like the paradigm of like Jewish godliness is Abraham. So that's how the Jewish mind viewed uh, him. And they, they thought, okay, yeah, I mean, this guy is amazing. He's perfect. He's unbelievable. And you see just like how Jews spoke of him. Look, I'm going to read the prayer of Manasseh, a Jewish prayer. And this is, this is how much Abraham was regarded in the first century. They think he's morally perfect. Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the just, has not appointed repentance to the just as to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which have not sinned against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance unto me that I am a sinner, for I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. So this guy's saying, I'm really sinful, but Abraham is not sinful, which is weird because if you look through Genesis, he makes some clear sins. Book of Jubilees uh, 23.10 says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness in all the days of his life. So he's, you know, saying, hey, what the Jews would go is they would, the Jewish people would go to these, these, these uh, examples of Abraham and say, see, you're, you're, Abraham was chosen and saved because he was so good, because he worked so hard. And so this is our example of salvation by faith alone. And Abraham, I mean, I'm not salvation by faith alone. This is our example of salvation by works is look at how great Abraham was. What Paul does is he, he does a trick on him. He turns it on him and says, oh, you're using this as an example of salvation by works. You think he's perfect? Well, I'm going to show you this is really an example of salvation by grace through faith. And he does this by, by citing the Old Testament, saying, see, Abraham had to be saved by faith. And if you think he's the best and he had to be saved by faith, how much more do you need to need saved by faith and grace alone? And it's not just the first century Jew. This is not like some distant old problem of, you know, salvation by works that no one really holds to anymore. No, this is a problem that Americans have. We want to do something. We want to contribute and strive to our, to our salvation. We also struggle, like first century Jews, with this idea of salvation by faith alone. We don't want to think it's just by trusting in Jesus that we're saved. We want to contribute something. That's kind of the American way of thinking. I want to do it myself. It's my way. We're very individualistic as well in that sense. This is what was found from Lifeway Research. I was kind of shocked to find this. Three quarters, that's 77%, say people must contribute their own effort for personal salvation. And more than half, 52% say good deeds help uh, someone earn a spot in heaven. So yeah, not a first century Jewish problem, but very much a modern day American problem. We want to be able to contribute to something, feel good about that we've contributed to something. And so, yeah, this is his point is that, hey, yeah, if he, you can contribute even the tiniest little thing to your salvation, a little tiny thing, the, the issue is that you can boast before God. You can say, hey, God, the reason why I got into heaven is I did a little bit of this. I did something here. And so he's like, no, but you can't boast before God. And even the, the Jews in that day accepted that. He's, he's like, no, if you could do anything, any work, anything at all, then you could boast before God. But that's just not the case. You can't say, hey, God, I did my part. Let me in. See, when we're in heaven together, the reason why we're going to give a tribute to why we're there is because of grace. Grace alone. That's it. In the next two verses, Paul distinguishes between two, I, I, I guess I want to say two alternative ways. A person can get righteousness. So there's two ways 
A person can get, get righteousness. That's the way of law and the way of faith. In verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, as his earning or merit. And this is the essence of law right here. This is like the law gospel distinction. The law right here says, you know, you work hard for something, you do everything you're supposed to do, and you're going to get a reward. You're going to get something good for it. And the law is not the gospel because the gospel is a gift we received. There's a difference between a paycheck and a gift, right? And this is, the, this is what he's distinguishing here is paycheck and gift. If your employer does not pay you, I mean, it's, he's legally obligated to pay you. You could take him to court. You know, so if you get your paycheck, you're not going to be like talking to your boss saying, yeah, thank you. You know, he's like, I've given you a gift. It's like, no, it's you, you got to give me your, yeah, I earned it. And that's what he's saying here is the law is through earning. Now, Paul has just like hammered us in the first two chapters saying, y'all are sinful. You're not earning any of this. You're not getting any of this. So this way of works and law, it's, it's kind of like X'd out. It's not going to happen because we're all sinful. We all mess up. And so we cannot get this paycheck of righteousness because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is the second way, which is Romans 4, 5, the way to get righteousness through grace and faith alone. He says, and to the one who does not work, so you're not working, you're not doing, you're not achieving, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, what's so interesting about this passage is if you translate it in Greek, it becomes very clear, it becomes pretty reasonable that Paul is putting us in kind of this law court scenario, this law court analogy. The picture that he's trying to say is, okay, we stand here as the accused before God, and God, the judge of all the earth, as a great judge, declares us pardons us, acquits us, and calls us righteous and innocent. The Greek word here is dikaio, and this word usually means in Greek to declare somebody legally righteous. Dikaio means to declare righteous. So when a person then trusts in God and Christ, as this verse says, they are counted as righteous. Now what's more interesting is that the word counted is the Greek word logizomai, which means imputed, or it's, very, it's a kind of an ancient legal term, counted, imputed, righteous. And so we are imputed righteousness and we are declared righteous. And so the, the reason why this verse meant so much to me as I translated it and as a seminarian is, you know, with all my sin and all my failure and all my mess ups, I, you know, I kind of, you kind of feel like I, you know, if I'm going to stand before God someday, I really expect to be in big trouble. I expect to be condemned. That's what I expect, you know, me being an anxious, neurotic person. But you see, instead of getting that declaration of guilt, I get a declaration over my entire life that I'm righteous. I'm declared innocent by the judge of the universe. And just knowing that is such for me, an amazing feeling of relief and joy. You know, people will often speak of, you know, legal, they'll speak of this legal idea of justification as kind of, oh, it's kind of cold and cerebral. And, you know, uh, you know that's what salvation, the justification is, is this kind of cold and legal reality. But I, I mean, being declared righteous when, when you feel guilty is just, I mean, it's an intensely relational and emotional experience. 
You know, I've seen so many people on a television and mostly, if I'm being honest, YouTube, because, you know, really, I mean, I, I, I'm, television's not really a good bet with satellite TV and everything being ripped off. I feel like YouTube, just go, go, go on YouTube or something, right? Um, if you have satellite, I'm not saying you're being ripped off. Just forget I said that, okay? Um, <laughs> you're like, millennial pastor, you know? <laughs> Um, so, so, yeah, you know, I see people on YouTube who get the, you know, innocent verdict and they, you know, they're expecting to be, you know, they're worried they're going to get the guilty verdict. And, you know, they're, they're so relieved. I mean, they're just like weeping and they can barely stand, you know, because they're expecting to get the, you know, guilty. And when they hear the not guilty, you just see just a, a sigh of joy and relief that you just, you can imagine how they feel. I've never been there because, you know, I've never like, you know, been accused of murdering somebody. So, but you can imagine how they feel. You could be uh, sympathetic to that. And it's just amazing, this verse, if you trust in Jesus this morning, the God of the whole universe has acquitted you, has declared you righteous and innocent. You don't need to feel guilty or shameful because God has says that you're innocent and that you're righteous even though you are imperfect and sinful. This is by grace. Martin Luther, uh, who is very German, in his very German manner, gave this analogy of this legal thing in a very uh, crass way, I want to say. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's just, or maybe it's, it's, it's juvenile or toddler-like. I'm not sure. I'm sure my son Kenny would really appreciate this. But what he said is that we are cow dung covered in the white snow of Christ's righteousness so that, you know, we're, we're sinful and messy, but you know, when you see snow on something, it looks, you know, we've had snow here recently, unfortunately in Utah, but you know, it's all white. It's all beautiful. You know, even things that are like, that look ugly are white and beautiful. And so he said in this very fitting analogy, we're like the cow dung, you know, very, very, very complimentary Martin Luther is. Um, he has some really excellent quotes. And so uh, he says, yeah, we're like the cow done in the snow, the white snow covering us. It makes us look right, makes us look white, makes us look covered in that white, pure snow. It, it, that's, that's like Christ's righteousness. And so that's what he describes it as, even though we're still messy and sinful, we're covered in the snow of Christ's righteousness. Now, what's interesting about the statement is I said, no other religion, no other founder of any religion has ever made the statement that God justifies the ungodly. This is totally unique to the biblical Christian worldview. And people just say, how can God, how can God actually, seriously, he's God, how can he justify somebody who is wicked and sinful? And it's really interesting. There's one very self-righteous uh, religious leader who was so greatly disturbed by this verse in the Bible that he translated the Bible and he changed this verse. This is his translation. But to him that seeketh not to be justified by the law of works, but believeth on him who justifies not the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Notice he put not the ungodly. It's just, it's so hard for people to believe. And so, you know, by the way, uh, the person who translated this didn't know Greek because there's no basis of this in the Greek translation to say not the ungodly. You have to add that in just to the English. But the point is, is that's how shocking it is. And I understand people struggle with this uh, because God is the greatest. He is infinitely just, 
infinitely holy. So then it gets even more mind-boggling as to how an infinitely holy, infinitely just being could declare somebody righteous, innocent, acquit them when they're, when they're wicked. I mean, isn't that like a major miscarriage in justice, you might say? And there's even a Bible verse that might like cosmetically appear to support that this is a miscarriage in justice. Look at Proverbs 17, 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So yeah, right. The Bible is clear. If someone is in a law court. So imagine this in a law court and someone murdered your parents, something horrible like that, or murdered somebody you loved. And the judge is like, oh yeah, innocent. Like that is like, that is a massive miscarriage in justice. You're like, what? That judge is messed up. And you would be rightfully so. You would have indignation. And so does God. So then how can God justify the ungodly if we're going to take God's justice and we're going to take Proverbs 17, 15 seriously? How is this the case? Well, in the first case, Proverbs 17 is talking about a human to human law court with a human judge and what one human being does offensively or hurts to another human being. And uh, you know, this, is, this is obviously a case here where the, the person is, you know, uh, hasn't been let off or the, the person has not paid the debt. So in this case, it's a human law court. Then you also have another component that's saying, okay, yeah, but there's been no payment of debt. So the person is let off. There's nothing done. He's just let off arbitrarily without any reason at all in a human law court. And what I want to say is that is not the case with God and us. Something else deeper is going on here. And so Proverbs is not enough like Romans 5 or not in the case of God. Because in the case of God, the debt has been paid. Our offense has been paid by the death of Jesus, the death and suffering of Jesus on the cross. He has taken the wrath of God and paid the penalty, fully punished for our sin on the cross. And so Romans 4.5 is addressing a divine law court and addressing, a, a pay, addressing injustices which have been already paid Fourth, And you see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. I'm going to read this here. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting, or the Greek word legitimai, not imputing, not counting their trespasses. So you have sins. You really do. You have trespasses. We're all sinful. But God's not counting them against them. And entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. So this is a legal context because you have sins and they're not legally being counted against you. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's the point of this transaction. For our sake, he, Jesus, made him to be sin. Oh, the father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus was made legally sinful, but he never sinned. So he did no sin because he didn't actually ever sin. He was perfect, spotless son of God, as the book of Hebrews says. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So the search shows that, the, that in this beautiful exchange, we get Christ's righteousness and Jesus gets 
our sin and our guilt. There's this transaction that takes place. Jesus is sinless and perfect. He gets our guilt. We are messy. We are sinful. We fail and we get his righteousness. There's this, this, this double transaction or imputation or counting that occurs. Jesus gets our sin, so he's punished for our sin for the sake of justice, satisfying divine justice. We deserve to be punished for our sin, so Jesus takes that punishment for us. And that is how God can justify the ungodly, because the price of our ungodliness, of our wickedness, has already been paid off. Now, some people have this concern, this objection. Okay, isn't it, I mean, Jesus is innocent and perfect, so, so like, how can he take our sin? Like, that seems kind of messed up. I mean, these, these, uh, these, these sins that we commit, he's being punished for. Jesus is innocent. And so why, how can he be the one punished for them? How is that right? How is that reasonable? And this is thinking of Jesus as an innocent bystander, some random person. But we have to remember is that, first, all offenses are against God. You know, the psalmist is against you and you alone have I sinned. So every sin in, in this sense is a cosmic treason against God. We are sinning against an infinite God. We deserve an infinite punishment. We are sinning against God. So our sins are against God. And as I said, we have to remember, Jesus is not some random innocent bystander. Jesus is God. And so the offenses we commit against God are against Christ. And so if God then chooses, freely chooses voluntarily to pay for our offenses against him in the person of Christ, then how is that unjust? How is that wrong? It's not, there's no moral or there's no philosophical problem. If the offended party, which is God, out of kindness wants to absorb the debt himself, there's no issue with that. I love the way how the great philosopher and theologian William Lane Craig puts it. He says, if an employer out of personal concern for his employee wishes to act mercifully by voluntarily being held vicariously liable for his employee's wrongdoing, how is that unjust or immoral? This actually happens. If you're an employer and your employee messes up on the job, you can take, uh, in, legally, you can take his, his wrongdoing, you can take his, uh, his, his guilt in court. In the same way, if Christ voluntarily invites our sin to be imputed to him, he's making the choice, he's inviting it, he's absorbing the debt himself. If Christ voluntarily invites our sin to be imputed to him for the sake of our salvation, what injustice is there in this? Who is to gangsay him? So the point being that our offenses that we commit against God, and he is God, he has a, if the offenses are against him, he has, he's God. He has the right to say, okay, you've sinned against me. This is, this is, how, this is how it's going to be dealt with. Because the offenses are against God here. And so there is no injustice with God declaring us righteous, even though we are wicked. You're like, well, why does he, you know, why does he just declare the righteous righteous? Why does God have to declare righteous the ungodly? Well, I hate to break it to you. It's because ungodly people are all that there are. That's the only people there are, are ungodly. We need a, none of us are perfect. And so this is the only kind of people there are. And so God wants to know us. He wants to have relationship with us. He wants to be with us in heaven forever and ever. God loves us. And so because God loves us and is infinitely gracious, he's an infinitely good and gracious God, he's going to work something out so that he can also be just and yet be with us forever in heaven to have eternal life with him, to know him. He's going to work it out. 
And God is also perfect and righteous. And so to be in the presence of a perfect and righteous being, we also have to be perfect and righteous. And so he works out this transaction then for us to be declared righteous when we're ungodly and transforms us through that, uh, as we'll see. But in this next passage, this is an amazing passage uh, as well. Uh, Romans 4, 6 through 8. And that, so he goes with Abraham and he goes to David here. He gives two big you know, examples. And he gives uh, David in a Psalm, quoting Psalm 32. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works by faith alone. That's what it's indicating. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So you have lawless deeds. You have sins. We all have sins. And they're covered. They're forgiven. Blessed is a man whom the Lord will not count his sin. So that's, a, that's imputation. So it's a legal category here. So you have sin, but God is not holding it against you. He's not treating you as a sinner. He's not punishing you or holding it against you. Now, this verse says something in the Greek that is so amazing and it's so unfortunate that so many English translations do not bring it out. And he says, blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. The Greek, when it says will not, it actually it uses, if in Greek, it says no twice in two different ways. Ume is the actual translation. And so Paul says no in two different ways, one denying the very possibility of it. And so in the Greek language, all this to say, I know this is like so much Greek today. It's like a Greek class we're having instead of a sermon. But all this to say, there is no stronger way in the entire Greek language to say no than with the way that Paul says no here. There's no stronger way to say this double negation because here he negates the very possibility the very possibility, isn't it impossible, that God could ever hold or count your sin against you. He uses the strongest way to say it's impossible that he'd ever count your sin against you. This is my, my translation. It brings out the Greek. Blessed be the man whom it is impossible. It is impossible. It's not even possible for God. It is impossible that the Lord count his sin. That means if you trust in Christ this morning, it will be impossible, impossible for God to ever hold your sin against you, no matter what, no matter what you have done. That means there's always with God, you may have messed up your life in so many ways, hurt people. And this is how it is when you hurt people or you mess up. People, you know, like they will hold it against you. We know that. There's enough stuff you can do where people will stop uh, loving and caring about you. I mean, we, I mean, I, I guess, except for your mother, maybe. I'm just kidding. But, well, yeah, that's actually probably true. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's, there's, but, you know, there's people, they're, they, have a, they have a short rope, kind of, in a lot of ways. And you mess up enough, people are not going to uh, really be forgiving anymore. But, see, with God, it's not like that. It was so amazing. With God, uh, there's always another chance. There's always, uh, there's always a tomorrow where you trust in Christ and all your sins are forgiven. It's never too late as long as you're alive to trust in Christ. There's always another chance. It's never game over with God. 
there's always another chance. And that God cannot hold your sins against you ever. It's impossible. And the reason why it's impossible is that sin was held against Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when he screamed out from a cross, it is finished, paid in full. It's already been paid for. That's why it's impossible. When God pays for something, he ain't taking it back. So God can no longer reject you when you trust in him any more than he can reject Jesus. His love for you is so never-ending, is everlasting. It will never stop, no matter what you do. We need to hear this. I need to hear this because, you know, no matter how good we may come off, how I may come off to you, we know deep down inside we are so far from perfect. And a part of why hearing that God declares me innocent when I'm ungodly is such a comfort to me personally is deep down inside, I have never kept all of God's demand. I mean, if I'm being honest, I mean, has there ever been a point... I mean, I, I, I mean, think about it. Ever been a point in my life, as I think about it, you know, where I said, okay, you know, Nate, you are doing everything that God wants you to. I've never had that thought. I've never thought like, you know, right now, I'm pretty sure I'm doing everything that God requires. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I've just never had that thought. I have never felt that way ever, not even for a minute. Now, I mean, sometimes you have this, right? Like you do something really good and you're like, ha, I feel pretty good, you know? But the next day you don't. You don't feel good at all. And you're like, oh, wow, I got to do something else. So you have these ups and downs. But the point is, is I just never like felt like entirely like, yeah, I've done everything perfectly. I am so amazing. Everything that God requires right here, you know. I mean, you know, if you think that, I don't know what to tell you, but it's kind of messed up because it's not true. It's not true at all. And so we, what happens is we, we, we slip into exhaustion because we're like, okay, I'm never doing enough. I got to do more. I'm never doing enough. I got to do more. And because of that, we're always, we're, we're always feeling this burden and the stress. And there's like, then there's like lingering guilt and shame because we never feel like we're doing enough. And we just we replay all of our failures in our heads over and over again, especially at four o'clock in the morning, that kind of stuff. But you see, the gospel provides a solution to all that mess. It says, Jesus met all of God's demands for us. The only solution to this nagging human predicament is to remind ourselves over and over and over again that God's demands, that Jesus kept God's demands for us because we are declared righteous even though we fail every day. My whole life is acquitted. And that has honestly saved my life, my sanity. You see, these legal realities that God justifies me when I am wicked, this is amazing. This is that God will never hold any sin against me and that will never count or impute my sins. This is the key to Christian transformation. This is the key to Christian discipleship. It doesn't make me immoral. It makes me moral. It's not like, you know, people think, well, okay, you know, you believe in Jesus, you have this legal transaction, you know, you, know, you pray the prayer and you're good to go and you can live your life like uh, you know, uh, like hell's child or something, you know, you know, slashing tires and burning down houses, whatever, you know. But no, this good news actually literally changes our lives because the fact 
that it is impossible for God to ever count my sins against me, to ever hold my sins against me. My worst sins, my worst days, he doesn't hold that against me. That fact makes me love God more. The fact that God loves me at my worst, on my worst day, doesn't make me want to be bad. It makes me want to give God my best because he loves me when I'm at my worst. And so everything I do is for God because he unconditionally loves me. I'm not doing things for this conditional, you know, arbitrary deity that just can, I do one thing and then he hates me. No, I'm doing for a God who unconditionally loved me and sacrificed everything for me. And just knowing that and receiving that gift brings transformation. It makes me want to be a better follower and disciple of Jesus. Going back to that love, that sacrifice that I'll never be able to comprehend even in eternity. And so if you trust in Jesus this morning, he will declare you righteous. He will acquit you this morning. All your sins are forgiven. You are acquitted, innocent, righteous in his sight. And that will change your life. Praise God for that. Let's pray.